Hey guys, welcome back to The State of It, Season 3, Episode 2. We're doing another episode on the Russo-Ukrainian war, because that's very prominent in the news right now. I'm still at uni, Dad's joining me from home. Dad, how are you feeling today? I'm uh, very well, thanks, Winnie. Uh, still just, my heart just bleeds for what we're seeing on our screens. It's just, I've got to say, it's a, it really deeply affects me. But um, apart from that, I'm in good shape and hoping to add some insight and perspective to this traumatic period. Well, you've been churning out quite a quite a few pieces on your website. And one of the things that's come up is what you refer to as Putin's trap. Can you just go into some detail with us now on what you mean by Putin's trap and what it entails? Yeah, so look, um, I think the really funding first issue is this portrayal of Putin has been mad and you know full tonto all of the derogatory comments around having a mad despotic leader I think are really not productive and I think actually they're counterproductive because in the art of war if you don't respect your enemy you really don't seek to understand his logic and get inside that process so you can get ahead of his decision making. And the moment you describe him as mad, well, who can get inside a madman's head? And I don't believe Putin is mad by any means. I think he has a plan that he's been enacting since 2007, which is now very obvious, the pieces of that plan that we're building to this moment. And that plan is essentially to push NATO back to at least you know the border of uh, Ukraine on the western side and possibly take in also the um, the Baltic states as he links a line between the western part of Belarus Ukraine all the way to the to the to the seas at the top um, in the Baltic so there is not a madness here and I think we're underestimating him I think furthermore the real concern is that um, by thinking that he's mad and congratulating ourselves that haven't we responded quickly and aren't we doing all the right things? I'm sure he must be hurting with his sanctions. We are underestimating the fact this man is a strategic thinker who's put every piece of the puzzle in play. And yes, we might have agglomerated our common interests slightly quicker than expected. And we might have taken some central bank money because he mistakenly left it lying around in our central banks. But fundamentally, he's running the show and we're behind and reacting. Um, and I've been concerned about that for a few days. There have been other things which have made me really concerned because it didn't make sense. Um, and so one of those processes is why send in light forces? Why did they not saturate Ukraine with a cyber attack, which disabled its communications and infrastructure, which is exactly what that capability could do? Um, why, uh, for example, have they um, been so slow in logistically moving um, all of those things suggest to me that, you know, we would like to think they're incompetent, logistically challenged, uh, all of the things that make us underestimate them. But I think there's another interpretation. And one of the origins of this is that when this started off, most Western analysts said, well, who, how can he ever hope to take over 44 million people? How can he ever hope to take the whole of Ukraine and control it? And at the time, I have always thought and, and commented that essentially um, the whole process was one whereby um, it depended what strategy you used. And if it was draconian, then basically you could do it. So faced with that issue, I think Putin's plan, and this is my working theory, is that this is not the first and last step that Putin is going to make. 
Putin seeks Ukraine for numerous reasons. The territory mainly occupies in terms of the, the shortening his defence lines against NATO, resources, all of the lists which I've talked about before. But the real issue is how do you get hold of this country? And the answer is you conduct um, a two-phase campaign, as we're seeing, the east first, up until the western, along the western bank of the Denepa, and then surround Kiev. But I think he sent his light forces in um, first, because those light forces, if they had gained a Swiss victory, gained the flag in Kiev, then it would have been an easy victory. But he didn't account for that. It is not the actions of someone um, thinking he's going to have an easy victory to have the week before nuclear exercises that demonstrate that the capability is fully running before going in, actually threatening that any intervention would result in nuclear intervention on his behalf. They're the actions of someone that knew it was going to get really tough and bloody. So I think the first light forces were designed to, in the event of the flag capture model didn't work, quite simply stimulate the defences of the Ukraine give them a feeling that they were winning, give them a feeling that, you know, you could rally people to the defence. Of course, that defence was around the cities and essentially draw all of the resistance elements of Ukraine into this, these single locations of cities. Anyone with any fight joined the fight. They kept the radio stations alive and communications alive so the message would go out. And by fighting the lighter forces, essentially, obviously, they felt as if they had a chance and were doing well. And for Putin, that was just a small sacrifice in his bigger game, a bit like playing chess and moving your pawns forwards. But the real strategy is the heavier forces, which are coming into play to surround cities, as we've seen on the eastern side and surrounding Kiev. And then what happens next is quite simply eradication, because in eradicating the people trapped in those cities, any fighters involved in that process would die. And with it, you've really sucked in the process of all the people in Ukraine or the predominant numbers who would provide resistance if you took over Ukraine with a simple flag operation with light forces in day three and then faced a counterinsurgency campaign. You couldn't, couldn't hold on to it. It would just be a nightmare like Afghanistan. So I think this total eradication strategy is designed to ensure that Putin is, I mean, Ukraine is completely subjugated. And as he moves on to the north, he has a secure flank to the south. And it's a brutal campaign, but it's one entirely consistent with their thought process. They have a thing called Mastroika, which is strategic deception. And it's very difficult to imagine that this operation hasn't been planned with whole elements and dimensions of that strategic um, perception of, of manipulation. And so I think we've been overly confident that he's going to basically lose, overly confident he's overextended. And I think actually he's going to dominate Ukraine with horrendous casualties and then be intact, ready for his next operation, which inevitably will follow. And I think in that dimension, the problem we've got is that there is a clear relationship, as I've talked about and warned in that uh, meeting with Putin and Xi. U.S. intelligence is talking about the fact that Chinese knew about the invasion and asked him to delay it till the Olympics finished. Um, and that suggests they are both strategically involved. And it suggests that this attack in Ukraine is but one of a stepping stone for Putin along the NATO uh, wall and, and, and defence line going up to the Baltics. And Finland is obviously very, very vulnerable outside NATO again. So, I mean, if we're quick, we should be wrapping NATO up in, into Finland. And um, we this is just the opening gambit in what is a string of increasing conflicts, which really comprise World War Three. And, and it amazes me that oh, in the West... That, 
Yeah. If I may, just quickly slot in there. Um, you're starting to talk about the Baltic states, which I think is a really interesting topic because earlier you mentioned some um, some stuff about how Russia is seeking to move in there and retake them. But before we just dive into that quickly, could I go back to what you were saying about the Russian strategic plan? Because you are essentially propagating the idea that the entire plan all along was that they would basically make slow headway, get the fighters into the cities, get the population risen into certain areas, and then just bomb and destroy the cities and populations and therefore resistance to their occupation. But is it not more, is it not necessarily, I don't know, almost more likely that their campaign has just not gone as planned? I mean, the head of the armed forces for, for Russia, or one of, one of Putin's top generals, was recently fired because it's been a bit of a bit of a disaster from the planning front is it not that this eradication strategy of fighters in cities being bombed is a consequence of a bad campaign so far rather than planning and good planning for putin Winnie, it really could be and but the, i think the differentiator between um one my view and the view you've articulated is that um if putin really thought it was going to be easy and it got more difficult then he would never have enacted this nuclear strategy of warning, which involved the exercises 10 to 7 days before the invasion. That's a very, very, um, that's a very extreme strategy that it would almost accept there will be escalation and uh, a very, very nasty war to prevent NATO involvement from. So I, I don't think so. I, I think Mastroika is all about strategic deception and who you fire and how things go slowly. You know, they're easily things that you could create and manipulate. For example, why haven't the U Soviet Air Force been flying? Why did they not shut off all of the television stations and cyber networks until yesterday? Yesterday, they shut them off because the trap is sprung. They've attracted all the people they can into the cities. They're about to close the net in Kiev and essentially the job's done, which is when they took out the radio stations. That was not a random event. I, I see underneath what appears to be disorder and chaos, I see a fundamental strategy which allows Putin to take hold, control Ukraine, because there won't be any significant resistance left. With the Baltic states, what do you think this war spells out for their future? If you were in the Baltics right now, what would uh, you do? You know, I've just been, I was watching some of the, some interviews because obviously Boris and um Liz Truss have been there emphasising our support. Uh, I think I would take absolutely no comfort from knowing that Britain has deployed uh, 1,200 soldiers. It's a joke. And what we think of is support and this ridiculous political regime that fails to understand the meaning of defence and the meaning of kinetic power is really concerning. And it is further concerning that having identified what Putin is and what he is doing, and this isn't just a one-off, it's part of an algorithmic expansion plan that started with Georgia, went through to you know the Crimea, uh, involved live fire exercises in Syria where his troops learned how to do this. And essentially now we have this step. I think it's really alarming that our politicians are full of hubris. They fail to understand and they diminish Putin when we should truly be scared and respect him for his, his, his prowess. And I think by deploying forces, we need to deploy real forces, 
not token forces or tripwire forces. So I would be very, very worried if I was in the Baltic states that that basically they are vulnerable. And we don't in the West have enough forces in that domain to prevent a full sale onslaught of that's what the Russians choose to do. And as far as being inside NATO, I think we've seen a glimpse that basically Putin's 2017 strategy of de-escalation was exactly decided in such a way as to confront a weak Western leadership with the use of small nuclear weapons and see whether or not they could match the same intention. And at the moment, having looked at our responses to Afghanistan and our responses to this in hard kinetic military terms, I have to say that I think he, in his mind, he is prepared and will try it. So somewhere along the line, we're going to have a nuclear face-off as he pushes what he perceives to be weak Western leadership, especially led by Biden, whose State of the Union address was the most insipid sleep-making thing I've ever seen at a time of great uh, national stress. Uh, it didn't add any confidence for me, and I'm sure Putin and Xi would have taken remarkable cues from their assessment how vulnerable and weak America is under his leadership. When, if, if and when, do you think Putin will make a move on the Baltic states? Well, first of all, he's got to basically finish Ukraine. So you can't, you know, digest different fronts at different times. I'm very worried about what the Chinese are about to do because they're obviously in cahoots and the two vulnerable areas are Taiwan. But I think there's one that everyone forgets, which is South Korea. I keep saying to people that huge army the North Koreans built, they didn't pay for it themselves. The CCP did. It's there for a single purpose. It's had to, up, it's had to be able to upgrade its weapons. It even has hypersonic weapons, which were given it by the Chinese, I think, for a single purpose, to move south into Korea and at the same time provide a distraction as they go for Taiwan. So I think it's like watching a deck of cards. And as we'll talk about next, about the, the, the basically, you know, the, the, the commodity shock that's coming, that commodity shock only catalyzes China interaction for certain reasons, which we'll talk about. So moving on from the military aspects of, of what's going on, can you tell us a little bit about the energy shock to the West and what that's going to entail for the West in the near future? So you've, you and I have talked a lot about the 25-year half commodity cycle called the K cycle. It's actually a 56-year cycle, which back in 2002, when I identified it, started again. I made the, the very clear assumption, which wasn't to many, that essentially the peak would come between 20 and 25. And before that peak, commodity competition would stimulate the potential for World War III with Asia being the core protagonist. And I've been shouting from the hilltops about this timing or the, the, the drumming of the commodity cycle that encourages conflict. So in the case of Russia, the conflict is derived from their, Putin's increased wealth. And you can look back at 2007 at the moment when essentially he wasn't allowed into NATO or the EU. The commodity or, or predominantly petrol prices surged. Money kept coming back into the Russian coffers. And he could see a route through, you know, the commodity cycle to rearming. And that was a moment when I think he decided that the West needed to be dealt a lesson. And for 15 years, we've seen the commodity cycle increase in price really add to the coffers. And quite rightly, we've just begun to see analysis understand that the, the, the rearmament of Russia derived from that commodity wealth. It didn't go back into the pockets of the people. It went into his oligarchs and his army. And so for Russia, that commodity cycle has created a timing of wealth to assert his belief in rebuilding the USSR. For China, it's really different. It's a full-on commodity consumer. 
and it needs commodities to make its economy work. And just like Japan in 1940 when or 41 when there's an oil embargo, this is basically going to catalyze the Chinese into expanding along their resource chains and making sure they take their commodities rather than have to pay high prices. So strangely enough, on an economic level, the escalation of this war is going to increase energy prices um, in Europe, especially because um, essentially, why should we buy oil and gas from Putin to pay for a war we're fighting against in all but name? And so that's going to stop soon. Whether he stops it, we stop it, it's going to stop soon. Whether the sanctions make it impossible to pay Russia for its, for its oil and gas, one way or the other, sooner or later, that's going to stop. And it's going to skyrocket um, commodity prices. And they're already, already moving in an incredibly impulsive way because what's happening with that skyrocketing process is that essentially we're moving into the final stages of the commodity cycle. And that commodity cycle essentially comes to a horrible blistering rocket upwards with oil at $300, I'd say, somewhere in the next sort of 18 months, and now on its way to $200. So whatever people are thinking about this energy shock or Putin's energy shock, I have a horrible feeling that it's going to be far, far higher than any shock we've seen anywhere in the past 100 years. And so there's going to be massive inflation, you know, difficult with energy in countries, it's going to be a real energy nightmare, nightmare in sustaining a conflict which also just exacerbates it. So I think it's going to be damn tricky and uh, we're ill prepared in terms of our energy security, although better off than some of the European states. But I think in Europe, when they start cutting off gas, whole, the whole economy is going to start to choke and have a power problem, which is obviously a huge issue. Well, our, our energy supplies as a country, as the UK now, we are, I think, is it? over half our energy comes from renewable energy sources so we're going in the right direction but i do think you know this this does pose a bit of a major major problem with with oil hitting prices that are, that are so high but moving on to our last major theme do you think that this state of affairs this whole situation with the russia the russo-ukrainian war do you think that it it's been avoidable. Do you think if we turn back the clock 10, 15 years, there are things that could have been done to to stop this? And, and if so, what were they? Okay, so, so first of all, I have really, really not approved of the way we treated Russia when the wall came down. America treated it like a trampled foe rather than with respect, as it did with Germany and Japan. And truly failed, I say, we in the West, but especially America, because those programs have always been American. They failed to invest in ensuring there was democracy in Russia. And the result was they turned away from democracy. Funny enough, at the time they, they Putin came in was the beginning of the new commodity cycle. And he was left with a, in this image of the greatest disaster. Uh, we didn't help him. It said that he asked to join the EU and NATO and was rejected somewhere around 07, 06. Uh, but certainly around that period, I think the evidence he's, he decided if he couldn't be in the team, he would be outside and bringing it down. And so the plans laid at that stage were ones of looking to erode NATO and EU. And also the EU and NATO just kept expanding eastwards, which really I can understand from a Russian perspective. After all, the you know, the assurances that wasn't going to happen would appear to be aggressive, expansive and disrespectful. And the problem is that we just kept disarming through those years. We kept expanding and we kept disarming. 
and no one took any notice that Russia was rearming and we were weaker and he was stronger and that he had a fundamental grievance. Georgia was a surprise and essentially we should have really stood up and understood what that was, but no one seemed to really care. Um, and then essentially came the whole issue around Ukraine. And that Ukraine issue, I'm absolutely convinced, came about because of Obama's um, frustration and, you know, egocentric perspective following Putin tickling him in the New York Times and the chemical red line being crossed. And I think that we triggered that revolution that turned Ukraine from pro-Russian to pro-Western. And in that moment, every alarm bell rang in Putin's head. It rang because Ukraine at that stage had found huge gas um, consolidate, uh, consolidate and oil reserves, uh, oil oil and gas off um, the Crimea Peninsula, which was obviously the first that Putin grabbed because that's now under American, um, Russian influence, and also a, a large field in the West and a large field in the East. That would have meant that Ukraine could provide gas to Europe instead of Russia, and it would have meant that Russia lost its leverage over Europe. So the combination of it was a democracy in the making when it should be a Russian people in his mind. It should be subjugated by him and it wasn't. It was free. It was about an energy competitor. It was in the strategic domain of the southern sector that he needed to push back NATO. All those things made Ukraine his target. And he grabbed a piece of Crimea, which is the beginning of that process. And since that time, he's been absolutely dedicated and worked tirelessly to come to this moment. And of course, as the commodity cycle went down into the lows of 2020, I think that held him back. And I think at that stage, he was wondering whether he had enough money because the revenues were gradually decreasing. And at the time when oil was zero, he probably thought this will take a bit longer than I thought. But then the third stage or the sea wave of the commodity side started in 2020. And of course, oil shot up and then his confidence just boomed back. And that confidence has begat this moment. It's directly related to the price of commodities and oil and gas. And he used gas, which he thought was a lever, which ultimately was cheap at the time. He wasn't thinking about revenues. He was thinking about strategic leverage. And sure enough, he used it to disable the perspective of Germany so that he could creep up on everyone and be threatening without Germany even being awake. So he's played a really cunning hand. And I think from the time I did make one comment, and that was, as we went into the commodity low in 19 and 20, there are marinations galore saying now is the time to make friends with Russia. Now is the time because he's the weakest he's ever going to be. And after this, he's going to be super strong and come at us. But I couldn't get through to anyone. No one seemed to re register that. And I was accurate in that prediction. And then, of course, I warned that the next stage is that having been economically low, he would suffer a revolution with Navani uh, and a good chance that it would be toppled. He was not toppled. And I have to say, I'm convinced the Western Intelligence Service did the best to help and make it happen, which then only redoubled his anger and really vitriol towards making his plan work. And then we also fundamentally failed to assess that, fundamentally failed to ensure that we had sufficient defence capability to deter him. And during that period, he's been sending his submarines into British waters, which no Cold War Russian submarine ever managed to do, probing our airspace, and there's something that I keep thinking about, and that is um, in personal security, there's a statistic that 90 days on average, someone is surveyed before they're kidnapped. That means surveillance is aggressive with intention. So the kind of military surveillance he's been conducting with submarines, aeroplanes, electronic warfare ships, that has been aggressive. And he's been doing it because he's been probing us for weakness. And that's all he's seen. And that weakness has encouraged him that he can get away with this moment. 
And the other final piece of his test was the Salisbury poisoning. In the Salisbury poisoning, he saw the breaking of a weapon of mass destruction, either biological, chemical, nuclear in the Cold War terms. And all Britain did was maybe turn the lights out in some city. And he knew from that moment onwards that his assessment of Britain under May and un subsequently under Boris, because the defence review was truly and utterly disabling to our defence forces, that his theorem was right. And this is the right moment. Then he completed his relationship with the Chinese so he can sell resources to them over land, avoiding all the maritime routes and completed all sorts of other linkages, which I'm afraid we're going to see this year, which are all to the detriment of the West. And their motivation on top has been to take advantage of Biden as president because their biggest concern is worrying he dies in office because he's their ideal opposition. He's weak, ineffective, and truly in any combat situation, he's the ideal person to fight against. And while he's there, they will be encouraged to make aggressive moves. So it's all come together in one horrible, nasty snowball. And the moment the challenge to the West is to really wake up and realize we're not supplying weapons passively. We are at war with Russia. That's how Russia views it. And we better get ourselves into gear. We better mobilize, start spending emergency amounts on rearmament programs and make sure we have some semblance of capability before we are tested. I think that's all we have time for today, Dad. Thank you so much for speaking to me tonight because I know you had a really long day. And thank you for your insights. Well, Winnie, it's look, it's very hard actually as a father to talk about things to you know to your son. I mean, this is this is a nightmare for people of our generation who had any foresight to see it coming, because these are serious times. And uh, I think the thing that I would like to say to everyone is that in history, um, mankind, predominantly most of our ancestors lived under some kind of threat. And they learn to live under that threat and to live moment to moment and live their lives, in, even if there was a, a war going on around them. And I think that my generation has been really privileged and your generation so far, uh, basically to live unthreatened. But now we're going to have to adapt and have to learn how to live our lives minute by minute, hour by hour and be in the moment and also prepare to um, push back the sword of Damocles, which holds over our head. And on that happy note, I think that's that's it. Thank you, Dad. It's a pleasure, Winnie. We'll speak uh, in a couple of days or tomorrow as news comes out.